Today I've entitled the message, Lessons from the Bread and the Boat. Uh, for those of you that were here last week, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And so really this is a continuation on Jesus revealing himself uh, to the disciples. Um, before we look at this this morning, um, I want to uh, reiterate um, uh, back when I moved to Virginia... Uh, I moved there to go to Liberty University uh, to study for ministry uh, as a single, and then I attended a singles class, and that's where I met this young lady, and um, she caught my eye and um, started seeing her and getting to know her, and then I decided it's time to move toward the engagement ring, and so I made my way over to the mall. And as I got over to the mall, I had one, I had a prayer that I was praying. I was praying because our singles class had about 100 people, and I'm praying that no one sees me in there because, you know, then word spreads and all this. So I'm just like praying, God, please, you know, keep. And I'm in there looking around, you know, at the display cases, and lo and behold, I hear someone say my name, Roy. And it's a female. Not that any, um, no, you know, but, she, she, but this was a female that liked to talk, okay? I'm just telling you, she had a reputation. And she's like, Roy, <gasps> like that. And I thought, oh my goodness. And so then my prayer was, God, you shut the mouths of the lions in the lion's den. Is there any way you could shut this one woman's mouth? And to my knowledge, I don't know if she ever did tell anybody, um, but it didn't stop the engagement anyhow. Um, I got the ring and we got engaged. But it's interesting, when you go into a jewelry store, um, oftentimes they'll have diamonds and necklaces and things. And if you pay attention, they have a dark backdrop behind the, the, the diamonds. Oftentimes it's black. There's like a black velvet type thing. And then they have that bright brilliant light shining on the diamond to show off all of its brilliance, right? This is what we see in this story if we pay attention to it. We see Jesus as this beautiful, bright, brilliant Messiah, Savior against the backdrop of weak, broken, flawed man. Because we see, we see the, the disciples, and they, they have already misunderstood Jesus. They have already lacked faith in believing in Jesus. And so really, they're the dark backdrop of this contrast of this Messiah who is so sufficient for all of our needs. And so here's really kind of what we're going to look at today is the fact that Jesus is worthy of our trust to handle anything that comes our way. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what you've come through. But I do know this, for absolute rock-solid certainty, that Jesus is worthy of your trust and my trust to handle anything that comes my way. And we see this through this passage because Jesus walks on the water and he goes to them. We're going to read the account. 
and then we'll come back and unpack it. So Mark chapter 6, as we continue our journey with Jesus, beginning in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because all, they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gesenaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, <clears throat> into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. You can't help but see the brilliance of the Messiah. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Unlike anything that we are, Jesus, though, has them get into a boat. He wants to move the disciples from a counterfeit faith to a confident faith. He wants to move them from a general faith to a genuine faith, and from a casual faith to a conquering faith. And so we learn four lessons from the bread and the boat. The first lesson we learn is the Jesus practice of private prayer. He sends them away in the boat, and after leaving them, he goes up on a mountainside to pray. He shows his dependency on the Father. Jesus was a man of prayer. He had recently had to receive the news of the death of John the Baptist. We learned earlier that John the Baptist had been beheaded. Jesus had to have a heavy heart from the loss of John. The Bible tells us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So Jesus would have been dealing with grief. And he took his grief to his father. Jesus also would have been praying for his disciples. He knew that they were about to face a terrible storm. And he's praying for his disciples. And how they would respond. Jesus is also a man of faith. To be a person of prayer is to be a person of faith. He trusts his heavenly father. He knows the mission that his Father has called him to, and he will fulfill that mission as he trusts his faithful follower. And Jesus is also a man of humility. He demonstrates this with his humble submission to his Father by seeking his mind and his will for his life. 
There are times where it is good for us as believers to get together and pray with other believers. That's why we have a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And it's good to get together and pray together. It's important. The church was born in a prayer meeting. But there's other times where it is good for us to get alone with the Father and pray Matthew 6, 6 talks about getting into your prayer closet and praying. And your Father which sees in secret will reward you openly. That's when we know we are desperate. When we talk to our Father. Jesus gives us that wonderful example. And I think our prayer, and mine don't always begin this way, but I think they need to begin this way, is where we praise God for who he is. We don't just come with our grocery list of things we want him to do, but we come and we praise him for who he is and for what he has done. And we praise him. And then from there we can move to petition where we present our request to God. And then it would be good to close with praise again for all that he has done, for all the gifts that he has given us. God has blessed me with a godly wife. God has blessed me with two healthy children who are in Christian university. Um, God has blessed us with a warm home. And I'm telling you, as cold as these days are, it's nice to have a warm home, isn't it? I have food in my refrigerator. I have clothes in my closet. I have a nice soft bed to climb into. I mean, we, we take for granted all these things that God has given us, the health that we have, the jobs that we have, the ministries that we have, the church family that we have. We have so much to talk to the Father about and to thank Him for. But Jesus demonstrates that. Before Jesus broke the bread to feed the 5,000, it says that He prayed to the Father. And so the example of prayer that we see going on in the life of Jesus. The second lesson we learn is that Jesus is closer than you think. We tend to think that sometimes when we are going through difficulty especially, we think that Jesus, God is way out there somewhere, way beyond the possibility of him hearing our prayer, responding to us, caring about us, ministering to us, that he's just way out there somewhere. I want to remind us that Jesus is closer than you think. Here he tells them in verse 45, right after he feeds the 5,000, they pick up the 12 basketfuls. Each of them have a full basket to remind them that Jesus is more than sufficient for everything that we need. They walk away with this full basket, and yet their hearts don't get it. They don't get it. He commands them to get into the boat. He doesn't suggest. Notice it says he made his He actually compelled them and commanded them, as it were, almost, to get into the boat. It's kind of like, you know, parents, when you, it's time to take the trash out, and you have to tell your teenager, hey, take the trash out. It's not, a, it's not an option. It's not, you know, up for debate. Take the trash out. It's a command, right? Because if it's up for discussion or debate, the kid's probably going to sit there and not do it. Remind me of the guy that um, his son was hair was getting kind of long, and his dad told him, "Son, you need to get your hair cut." 
It was kind of a command, but his son said, well, my hair's really not that long, Dad. And, and Dad said, uh, well, son, uh, let's just put it this way. If you don't get your hair cut, I'll just not let you drive the car. And the son responded back, and he's like, well, Dad, Jesus had long hair. The dad said, son, Jesus also walked everywhere he went. It's your choice. <laughs> um, so he commands them to get into the boat. And he tells them to go to Bethsaida, which for guys, it would be a wonderful place to go because Bethsaida was a fishing village. It was a fishing and hunting place. So he's telling them to go to this little fishing village. It's also the place where Philip, Andrew, and Peter were from. So the disciples in the boat, when Jesus tells them to get into the boat, he is providentially guiding them into a storm. Now I want you to think about that because that doesn't sound like a very loving thing to do. Where you, have you ever told your child, hey, I want you to go this way because something not really good is going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to make you go this way because something not very good is going to happen. You're going to face a painful, scary time. Go. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we do kind of push them into things, but we have to understand that Jesus knows something that we don't. And so when we are going through something, God has providentially guided us into whatever we're facing. And we have to realize that. And that is so important. So there's a couple things here when I say Jesus is closer than you think. And that is this. <clears throat> Jesus can be close and far away at the same time. See, this is what we don't understand because we as humans, we have time and space. I'm right here and I can't be there too. I can't be sitting beside you and standing up here at the same time. Jesus, however, in the human flesh could only be in one place at one time. But remember, Jesus is God and God fills the universe. There's a couple words used in theology. It is, one is the eminence, I-M-M. A-N-E-N-C-E, -E, the imminence of God, which means he is everywhere. There's also another word called the transcendence of God, and the transcendence of God says that God is nowhere. Now, let me clarify. When we say God is nowhere, we're saying he's not in one specific space and time because he is transcendent above time. He created time and space, so he is above time and space. He is above nature and humanity. He is distinct from nature and humanity, and that is important because it means he fills the universe. But on the other hand, he is imminent in the fact that he is a personal God because he has told us his name, he has told us his personality, and he shows us how he acts in history and that he has personal relationships with people. He talked to Adam and Eve in the garden. 
He talked to Moses. He talks to people. He wants a relationship. And in that relationship, he is trying to reveal himself to us. And so he providentially sends the disciples into this boat. Why? So they will go into a storm providentially because God has a lesson he wants to teach the disciples that they will not learn any other way. So what am I saying? God will providentially send you and I into difficult, rough waters, wind, waves, difficulty. Why? Because God is trying to teach us something about himself that he can't teach us any other way. But in the process, he is closer than you think. Because here it shows that when we look at this example, it says after leaving the disciples, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. But then look at the very next verse there. He saw them as they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now, how could he be way up on a mountain? I've been to, I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and I don't think you could tell people straining with oars from a mountain all the way down to the sea. God has supernatural ability. See, he's transcendent, but he's imminent. He's close. And that, to me, brings great assurance that when I'm going through a storm, God is not way out there past heaven somewhere. He's right here with me in the storm. He's with me through the trial. That, is, that should bring a great comfort to us. You are not walking alone. Remember the poem Footprints? When it looked like things were the most difficult, there was one set of footprints in the sand. Why? Because God carries us. And I find great comfort in that. So this really, when God told the disciples to get into the boat, here's how we can say it. It was a setup. It was a setup. He was setting them up for this. So he could teach them a lesson. There are three factors, Millard Erickson talks about in his book, Christian Theology, there are three factors of God's nature that always come together to produce correct action for God. The first one is that he is wise. He is wise. He knows what to do. The second one is he is good. He thus chooses to do what is right. And thirdly, he is powerful. He is capable of doing what he wills to do. He cannot act contrary to his nature. He cannot be cruel or unconcerned. He cannot fail to do what he has promised. And therefore, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is closer than you think. He may not be closer than you feel, because sometimes you may feel like God is far away. You may feel like he's not hearing and answering prayer. You may feel, I have felt those things before, so I know you felt them. But it's not feelings, it's faith. We come back to faith. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 23, 23. 
Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? The whole idea of transcendent and eminent, he's both. Because he's beyond time and space, and yet he's a personal God. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? See, there's his transcendence. He is all of that. Look in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where in the world in this universe could I possibly go to get away from you? If I ascend up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness, can I even get separated from God by darkness? And he says, no, because the darkness is even light (laughs) to God. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. (laughs) So you may think, man, I'm in this difficult spot and God doesn't see me. Um, Come back to the truth. (laughs) God sees you intimately. He sees everything that is going on. He sees the disciples struggling and what they're going through. And even in the Great Commission, when he commissioned the disciples to go and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing, teaching, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and he says, and I will be with you to the end of the age. I will be with you. Period. So he's there with us. He's closer than we think. The second or the third lesson we want to look at is that Jesus is wiser than you think. He sees them, says evening comes in verse 47, the boat's in the middle of the lake, he's alone on the land, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake and he was about to pass them by. The fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m., to 6 a.m. I mean, it's the middle of the night. Does Jesus know when I can't sleep? Does he know what's troubling my mind? Does he know when my heart is so burdened and my sleep is taken away? Yeah, he does. He does. He knows what's breaking your heart. He knows what's breaking my heart. He knows what the burden is. He's wiser than we think. Look what he says here in Matthew 10, 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Anybody know the number of hairs on your head? He's wiser than you think. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, including where you are and where you're not. Keeping watch on the evil and the good. We see all the evil that's going on in the world. We're like, does God really notice? Are you kidding? Does he notice? Of course he notices. 
He sees it all. And I'm sure his heart is grieved. He tells us in Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And this is important because here the disciples are in the, notice what it says in verse 47, they're in the middle of the lake. See, he got them out there far enough before he brought up the wind and the waves. If they were too close to shore, they could get out of it. And God sometimes will throw us into something so deeply there's not an easy out. It's not like they could just jump overboard or run to the shore. And I don't know what you're going through, and maybe you haven't gone through that yet, but there will be a time in your life where you will be, feel like you are in the middle of the lake, and there's no way out. You know where you are? You're in God's classroom. And you know what God's classroom is about? Let's talk about what it's not about. First of all, God's classroom is not about my personal comfort or your personal comfort. God's classroom is about our conformity to the image of Christ. That's his classroom. He puts them in the middle of the lake in a situation that humanly they can't get out of. And they are terrified. They see Jesus beginning to walk toward them. He's about to pass by them. Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Well, it's 3 to 6 in the morning. You don't expect to see somebody walking on water. I guess you can in South Dakota when it's February, right? Um, They thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And what does Jesus do? In his wisdom, he speaks to their fear. He was on the mountain. He seemed so far away, but he was closer than they thought. He felt so far away. They probably thought, why did he leave us out here in this boat And now we're in this mess. And then Jesus comes at the right time, but he didn't come. He let them struggle for a while. Struggle is important. I remember when I, um, and I've shared with you before, how I thought I was going to be the next senior pastor at our church in Virginia. And that was a crucial faith moment crisis of faith in my life. Why? Because I couldn't do anything about it. Nothing. Except cry out to God. God, I don't understand this. Don't understand what you're doing. I'm in the middle of the lake. There's no way out. I'm stuck. You put this desire in my heart to be a senior pastor. The door has been slammed in my face. My heart was like a glass goblet thrown on concrete and shattered. What's up? 
That's when you have frank talks with God. You don't go through all the theological jargon. You say, I don't get it. Just be honest. And what does God do? Wait. Oh, great. (laughs) That's what I want to do is wait. Wait for what? I, I remember telling God, I don't know what I'm waiting for. What am I waiting for? What, what is the deal? But you know what? It was in that classroom that God taught me the importance of who's in control and who's not. That the only thing we can do is cast ourselves at his feet and realize that he is sufficient. He is closer than we think. He is wiser than we think. And we need to trust him. And God in due time opened the door here at Bethesda. But you know what? Had I not gone through that painful experience, I don't believe I would have been the pastor you needed at this church. So we don't know what God is doing sometimes in taking us through something, but he's always preparing us for the next event. He's wiser than we think. He comes to them and he tells them, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He tells them to have a heart like iron, that he is there. And what happens in verse 51? He climbs into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. When did the storm subside? When Jesus got in the boat. He's closer than we think. He's there. He's wiser than we think. And the fourth lesson we learn from the bread and the boat, Jesus is stronger than you think. I've never met another person that can control the weather. I've never met another person that can walk on water. I've never met another person who could be up on a mountain and see somebody way down struggling in the middle of the sea. You see, we're seeing the brilliance of the Messiah. He is so different than us. And if we really believe this, it'll make a difference in how we live our lives. It'll make a difference in our prayer life. It'll make a difference in how we raise our kids. It'll make a difference in our marriage. It'll make a difference in how I work. I mean, all of that will make a difference. Jesus is stronger than you think. He is called, one of the names of God is El Shaddai, God Almighty. Here he says it in Genesis 17, 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and not blameless. I am El Shaddai, I am the Almighty God. I am sufficient. In Jeremiah chapter 32, there's an impending 
captivity of God's people. There is an impending Babylonian capture of God's people. Let's look, take a moment, take a quick look at it. In Jeremiah 32, 15, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. God is promising them they are going to buy houses and fields and vineyards again in that land, in a land that is going to be captured by the Babylonians. It doesn't seem possible. And then he says, After I have given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, now this is Jeremiah's prayer, and you talk about a man of faith. He says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. There's a lot of things that are too hard for me, but nothing is too hard for God. We see this over and over in Scripture. God promised Sarah that she was going to have a child. 25 years pass and she doesn't have the child. He tells her again, you're going to have a child. And now she's this old lady. And what does Sarah, how does she respond? She laughs. <laughs> she laughs. And God just simply, in some way, shape, or form, Sarah, is anything too hard for me? He shows his power over nature in the birth of Isaac. He shows his power over nature in the plagues of Egypt when the Israelites are walking out of Egyptian bondage. He brings all those plagues on Egypt to show his power over nature. Frogs and flies and the Nile turning into blood and all those things that he did to show his power over nature. He preserved the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. He preserved Daniel in the lion's den. And now we see Jesus, who is God, stilling a storm, walking on the water. Jesus is worthy of our trust to handle anything that comes our way. Anything. That is against the backdrop of weak, flawed people. God chooses to work through us. I find that amazing. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. These are the disciples. This is you and I. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The disciples had nothing to boast about except in Jesus Christ who came to their rescue. When you and I go through the classroom of the storm, 
God has put us providentially into that storm to teach us something we will learn no other way. Why? Because He loves us enough that He wants to conform us to His image. And therefore, whatever we are going through, He's worthy of our trust. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, how's your level of faith and trust? Maybe right now, you're in the middle of the lake. You got three choices, three things to look at. You can look at the wind, you can look at the waves, or you can look at the word. What do you choose? You look at the wind and the waves, you're going to go down. You look at the word, you're going to rise up. I will say sometimes I think that we as Christians, and I can probably even say myself, that sometimes we pray and maybe our motivation is fear. I think the disciples cried out from the boat because they were in fear. And so I think sometimes our prayer begins because of fear. Fear can put us on our knees, but faith keeps us on our knees. What is it that you are going through in the middle of the lake right now that humanly there's no way out? There's no escape. There's no answer. And yet Jesus comes and he says, am I worthy of your trust? Will you believe me that I can handle anything that comes your way? Because the truth of the matter is we all run to something or someone. Some people run to another human relationship and somehow they believe this relationship is going to meet all of their needs. False. Or they run to some substance, a chemical, a drug, a bottle, something. Or they practice self-sufficiency. I don't need God. I've heard people say that. I don't need God. I got, I got this. I can handle this. Well, they might for a little while until the storm comes. And then what? I haven't found a place where you can avoid all the storms of life. But we have learned where the shelter is. If you don't have a personal relationship with this Jesus and all of his brilliance, I would invite you to come to know him. You can pray right there in your seat. 
Do you have a general faith about God or do you have a genuine faith? Do you have a casual faith about God or do you have a conquering faith in God? Because a storm is coming. And if you haven't given your life to Christ, God is faithful enough to bring more storms into your life to show you your need of Him. And sometimes we have to face a lot of pain before we turn to Him. Would you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Maybe you don't know how to do that. Maybe you say, I don't understand. How do I do that? I'll be glad to talk with you after the service and and pray with you. And I know it takes courage to do that, say, hey, I don't understand this. But you know what? If that's you and you're here, my heart is thrilled because God is looking for seekers. He is looking for those who say, I want to know this God. And I'm guessing that's why you're here. And I would love to introduce you to him. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer, but you've been stuck in a rut and your faith is not growing because you haven't really grown in your understanding of this great Messiah. Would you commit yourself to begin to pray and seek the Lord and open his word so he can speak to you? because he wants to guide us. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.